New Testament lesson this morning is found in Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll be reading verses 19 to 25. You can follow along in your, uh, in your bulletin or in your Bible. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us, hold, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this morning, open our eyes that we would see wonders in your word. Illumine us by your spirit and um, speak these truths deep into our hearts that we would go transformed into the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we continue our sermon series uh, through the Songs of Ascent, which is a collection of psalms in the book of Psalms, this song book of the Bible. But it's a collection in that in this big book of the Bible of 15 hymns that we've said are, are the songs of pilgrims. They're the, they're the pilgrimage songs of, of an Israelite. They're the songs that Israelites, faithful Israelites, would sing year after year as they journeyed to Jerusalem, as they would uh, go three times a year is what's prescribed to worship their God in his temple. And on a long journey, as, as we all know, you've got to occupy the time somehow. Usually you do that with songs. So we've said these songs fill that space, and they are rich with, with meaning and, and exhortation and just a, a great resource for what it means to, to journey in the Christian life, to, to be on this pilgrimage as the Israelites were. This morning we look at Psalm 125, which is equally rich, and I trust will be a blessing to you. So you can follow along with me as we go through it. Perhaps one of the most famous home runs in baseball history uh, happened during Game 3 of the 1932 World Series. So this was a long time ago. This was a World Series between the New York Yankees and the Chicago Cubs. The game was played at Wrigley Field. After four innings of play, the score was tied at 4-4. Four to four. The Cubs pitcher was a man named Charlie Root. Charlie Root was still pitching, despite giving up several home runs already, in the fifth inning, when to the plate walked a man named George Ruth, uh, otherwise known as Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, um, prior to this even, was a larger-than-life character. He was kind of audacious out there, bold guy, big home run hitter, just a burly dude. And his character was well-known. Also, in this game, he had already hit a three-run home run in the first inning. So when he stepped up to the plate in the fifth inning, game tied, the Cubs dugout and the fans at Wrigley were fired up and they got loud. And so Babe Ruth steps up to the plate and he had a lot of noise to drown out. There were insults being hurled at him and by his own account, whether or not this is true, uh, you know, I, I can't say, but vegetables were being hurled at him. So 
east up to the plate trying to drown this out at Wrigley Field, which is a really boisterous stadium, and two fastballs go by, two strikes. And then he takes two balls, counts two and two. Babe Ruth then famously points two fingers to center field. And the next pitch, a fastball comes down, and Babe Ruth describes it as one of the best feelings he would ever feel in his lifetime. Uh, he belts one to the exact spot where he points in center field. The ball makes it halfway up the bleachers in Wrigley. It was a huge deal. And as Babe Ruth rounds third base to go home, he just glances at the Cubs dugout, and they're just silent, deadpan. The stadium's quiet. Everyone's bummed. The, you know, the Yankees take the lead, and they go on to win the game in the World Series. And moments like these, you know, there's historical debate about whether or not Babe Ruth actually called his shot, and he himself was uh, kind of vacillated on, on his answer. But moments like these are shocking. And baseball um, is a game of percentages. It's, it's a game, you know, a good batting average is, is around 300. You're toeing the line if you're hitting 250. And so that means you hit, you know, you get a hit one out of four at bats. So calling your shot uh, with two strikes on you is unheard of. It's outlandish. And supposedly Babe Ruth did it. And in moments like these, we wonder, where does that kind of confidence come from? I mean, forget baseball. Wouldn't you like to be able to call more of your shots? <laughs> I mean, I would. Um, I would love that kind of confidence. I would never have it in baseball, but um, that kind of confidence is, is uh, it's attractive. We wonder, where does such confidence come from? You know, when we're honest, the reality is that skepticism is far more pervasive than confidence in our lives. Our reality is rife with doubt. Doubt dominates. And most of the decisions that we make, at least that I make, I know, feel very often like shots in the dark. I'm not calling them by any means. Uh, these are basic decisions that feel this way. And I think it's an, a, a problem that's exacerbated in the modern world. We are surrounded by options, and there's a whole subcategory in our market for product reviewing. I mean, so basic decisions become so hard. When you have your first kid, it's like, what brand of diapers do I buy? I mean, really, there's so many options, and you got you know, the more expensive ones, the far cheaper ones that are they gonna hold their weight in stuff, or you know, <laughs> what? You're weighing, you know, priorities, sort of value, and, and what's important there. Basic decisions. Then we can ratchet that up, though, right? I mean, where do I go to college? Long gone are the days where you go, you know, to the place that's close. Unless you're a star athlete on a scholarship. What kind of car do you buy? It's a little bigger decision than what kind of diapers. What kind of, or what doctor do you see uh, for what ails you? These decisions get increasingly more serious, and the skepticism, the doubt, the lack of confidence that we feel when we have to make these decisions can be crippling. We're starving, just personally and as a culture, for reliable sources of information, for a source of confidence, both within ourselves and, and from outside. And on the journey to Jerusalem, if you would just travel back in mind to the Israelites 
going to Jerusalem to worship God. You know, that, that journey is, is, as we've seen in previous sermons in this series, that journey is, is full of, of difficulty and hardships. Um, the, the hills that surround you as you travel this path to Jerusalem are filled with brigands and bandits. Um, there's wicked nations bordering you. And there are also wicked family members, wicked Israelites, who have abandoned the worship of Yahweh and who are doing their own thing and who are unjust and willing to steal and hurt you. And um, we've seen that. So on this journey, confidence is a must. One doesn't take this journey repeatedly as is prescribed to go to Jerusalem three times a year without profound confidence, without deep trust. And the question before us that I believe Psalm 125 answers is where does confidence come from? And Psalm 125 answers that not just for the whole community, but for each one of us in our lives. It answers why we can trust God, where confidence can be sustained, where we go to remind ourselves that we have a God who loves us. And, um, you know, it's amazing. Psalm 124 and 125 are, are connected. Um, Psalm 124 declared, The Lord was on our side. We have escaped from the snare. Our hope is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And then in Psalm 125, it seems that, that the mind raises to another height. And it looks to the place where God is dwelling and finds not just salvation in the past, but security for the present. And the answer, where does confidence come from, is simple. It's right there in the first line. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. That God is our supreme source of confidence. And I don't want to move past that too quickly. Because, again, our culture thrives. I mean, as often as you hear the word confidence in our sort of daily usage, you hear it prefixed with something. I mean, what do you usually hear before the word confidence? You hear the word self. And I believe that the confidence prescribed here is in many ways in contrast to the self-confidence on offer in our culture. And it is far more reliable, a source of confidence, and it's far more uh, enjoyable, honestly. So Psalm 125 gives us four reasons, we'll see, for, for why we can have confidence, for where confidence, uh, gives us four places where confidence comes from. And the first two of these are, are just places where confidence comes from, pure and simple, why we can have confidence. The last two, as we'll see, will focus especially on, there are reasons for confidence, but they'll focus on the effect that confidence has in our lives as Christians as we journey like these Israelites. So reason number one, the first reason we have confidence is in verse one, that God has established us. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Like Mount Zion, and this is just a simple analogy in many ways, but I, I think about this and think, what is really the best thing that I've ever been compared to? And not much comes to mind, but sorry to keep the baseball thing going, but I think back when I was a kid and as I got more serious playing baseball as a sport, you know, you associate yourself with like some professional player. You think I'm like Derek Jeter or I'm like Jorge Posada, I was a big Yankees fan. So, you know, because every player's got a different swing, a different style, and so you compare yourself. I'm like him. 
And we do that because the guys who are there are way more secure than we are. They're established. And if we can connect ourselves to them, we feel that we have hope, <laughs> you know, to maybe be there one day. But like Mount Zion, this is the analogy we get here. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. The point is that we are as secure as anything else that God has spoken his promise over. Anything else. We are as secure as God's new creation. He has given us a sure foundation and set our feet upon a rock. A rock that we look to Mount Zion and think of. An unshakable foundation, an unshakable place, the place where God has promised to dwell. The God who cannot go back on his word has spoken his word over us and to us and to you. That you are his. That you belong with all else that belongs to him. And your redemption is as secure as the redemption of all things in Jesus Christ. So in our journey, on our journey, we look to the clear and certain realities of where God's promise has been spoken. Because oftentimes in our lives, if we're honest, we, we don't feel that that promise is ours. And we see things slipping around us, and, and our foundation feels weak, um, poorly built. And that's normal. I think we all experience that. Yet what this psalm calls us to do is to lift our eyes to a place that is secure, that it has been promised to us. And, you know, we might wonder, are there, are there clear realities today? Are there things that we might look to today that would point us to our eternal security, having been established by God? And I, I, would, I think there are many, and there are things that are personal to each one of us, things that God's done in the past that we call to mind, where we've seen God work in our lives that are just evidence that he is, is for us and on our side. But when it's only personal, I think we have to admit that uh, that foundation alone is, is insufficient. Because there are times in our lives where we, we wonder and, and we can't see and we, we don't know where God is taking us. And so Psalm 125 calls us to lift our eyes to greater realities than just ourselves and to see that we are connected to great realities. So I would just give you two. Um, the first one is, is the church. Just look around you. The fact that in 2,000 years this body stands and that there are people around you who want to praise the same God as you. And a not maybe not the primary, but a reason for going to church for me is just that it reminds me I'm not crazy. And especially when you commit a decent amount of time and money to maybe ministering and serving the church, um, you really, you know, there are times of doubt. And being in the church, being around people who have seen God work in their lives and who are confident, who even when not unconfident, want to praise him, it reminds us and it makes us look to the God who has brought this body together. And then within the church, I think of the sacraments, a physical, a tangible reality that we look to and we see that God has promised to be present with his people. We look to the certain realities, places we know God has spoken his promise over, to remind ourselves that God has established us as we journey. That you, like these things, cannot be moved. You, like Mount Zion, abide forever. The second reason that we have confidence is in verse 2, just moving through the psalm. We have confidence because God surrounds us. The God who has established us has not established us and left us to our own devices. 
As the mountain surrounds Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. You see, you know, the Bible talks a lot about Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, by the way, just synonymous. Jerusalem's maybe the bigger city. Uh, Zion is the mountainous, particularly mountainous place in Jerusalem where the temple was set atop. And the actual mountains that surround Jerusalem, though the Bible talks so much about Mount Zion, about Jerusalem, are taller than Mount Zion. It's not the highest of the mountains. And as the pilgrim journeys to Jerusalem to worship God, they, he or she looks around and enters maybe the gates of the temple and sees mountain, 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 and is reminded, again, looking to certain realities, things that can't be moved, like mountains, that God protects his people and that he is present with them. You see, God has established us in the past, and in, in the world of theology, we use terms like justification, right? That God has declared us right. He has forgiven us our trespasses and sins. He has washed us clean. We, objectively, we are God's people. And yet, God is present with us. He is not a, a king who reigns from afar. He is a king who sends his spirit to dwell within each one of us and to dwell in this body, that he is present with us and he surrounds us. We need not fear attacks from without, even attacks that we can't see, because we, in and of ourselves, are, are we have blind spots, and yet Yahweh, the God of Israel, who surrounds Jerusalem, protects us from the arrows of the accuser, and he protects us from overwhelming harm. And now we could distort this, and we could pretend that this uh, means that no bad things will befall us. And that's not what the passage is, is teaching. The rest of the songs, songs of ascent give no hint of that, really. The, the, the threats are real. And the Christian call is to take up a cross. And suffering in a certain kind of way is, is part and parcel of the Christian life. But God's promise stands that he is with us. Not just that he has done something for us in the past, but he is with us in the present and that he protects us, that all things work together for our good. So God surrounds us. And he surrounds us in the end of verse 2, now and forever. You are established and you are surrounded for eternity. And that is hard to believe sometimes. But this is the promise and this is the one thing that really, these two truths together, being established and being Surrounded can sustain confidence and that this is true now and forever. But as we move into the other, the, the latter part of the psalm, a, a question kind of rises as you think about what's going on here. And that is our trust and confidence alone, the point of the Christian life. I think that according to the Bible, that there is more to it than, than merely feeling safe. And again, the self-confidence complex in our culture teaches us that therapy alone is enough, that just feeling safe and good about yourself is enough. And yet, God calls us to more. I am not here to sort of knock self-confidence outright. The two truths that God has established us and surrounds us engender profound confidence and in some sense we could call that a self-confidence but it's more of a God confidence either way there is confidence 
But the Christian life gives us, it calls us to more than simply to trust and then sit back. And the last two reasons that the psalm gives us for confidence speak to what effect confidence has in our lives. So the third reason that we are confident is that God is committed to righteousness. And that's found in verses 3 and 5. So verse 3, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Verse 5, But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evil doers. What these verses speak to is a profound confidence in the reliability of, of the world and especially of the, the moral world over which God is king. That it is reliable. As Dr. King put it, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. And he's right about that. And it bends towards justice because God is the one who created all things and sustains all things. This isn't some blind principle built into creation. It is a personal principle that God is here, that this is God's world, that he will make the rights right and he will remove the wrongs. He is equitable. He is just. He is not arbitrary with you, despite that our experience may sometimes lead us to think that. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is, is safe. That following God's way, trusting in Him, is safe. Again, we could distort this and make it sound like life is easy, but this isn't the promise. The promise is that God will right wrongs, that He is just and good. And I think this is part of the dynamic of a line that we pray every week. Lead us far from temptation. Because temptation comes when we don't feel safe. Temptation comes when we are searching for something to latch on to. When we're looking to no avail for a place that we can call ours, that we can say, oh, this is my domain. And when we feel that we need that, when we feel that we don't have that security, but we'll go anywhere, we'll latch on to anything that has the slightest appeal. But friends, God is just. He has secured us and surrounds us. So we do not need to resort to crooked ways as a course of life. And we do well to consider all the ways in our own lives, in our work, in our relationships with peers, that we are tempted to compromise because the wicked seem to be getting ahead. In your business practices, in your family life, wherever it is, that you are surrounded by wickedness and that that temptation is real. These are the truths that we remind ourselves of. These are the truths that Israelites journeying to Jerusalem, being tempted, not just being in danger, but being tempted left and right to compromise, to turn to worship of false gods. These are the truths that need to be written on their hearts that they would continue journeying to Jerusalem. And these are the truths that must be written on our hearts that we would have confidence and persist in the journey that God is committed to righteousness and that that has direct implication for how we live the Christian life because we are free from needing to compromise. Thanks be to God.
the fourth reason, the fourth and final reason that Psalm 125 gives us for confidence is found in verse 4. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Do you see the shift in voice that just happened? Declarations of reality latching onto the promises of God in verses 1 through 3 and onto his character have, have shifted into prayer. Assurance that comes from these great truths blossoms into calling out, into petitioning God to do good now. You see, God's promises and presence are not, uh, we often think that they, they would lead us away from prayer. We often think that you know, because we can be so confident in who God is for us that we don't need to pray. But the move that the Psalms continually make speaks to a different truth, and that is that the, this, these assurances are actually the grounds for prayer. And if you think back to the fact that God surrounds us, that he's present with us, what else would we do? He is allied with us. He calls us by name, and he is not a distant benefactor. He is not just present with us in theory, but in reality. He's present with us through His Spirit. And so we call out to Him when we consider these truths. And this engenders confidence that God listens to us. This is the fourth thing, and it is something that, again, we need to reflect on in our own lives. What starting point, from what starting point do we begin our prayers? Is it confidence in the God who establishes us? I would suggest to you that the longevity of your prayer life is directly connected to where your prayers begin. And that doesn't mean that your prayers will all look the same. That doesn't mean that you have to always be happy when you pray. You pray through all seasons of life. The psalmist here in, in Psalm 120 to 125 pray through the, the time when they're in the hills that are, that are unsafe and insecure. And then their prayers persist when they enter Jerusalem into the safe and holy place. Our prayers can, can happen in all seasons of life, but they start from a foundation of assurance that our God has established us, that our God surrounds us, that our God is committed to righteousness. These promises are the fountainhead of a good praying life. And we must begin our prayers in that right understanding. We are what Christ is by adoption. We have a relationship with God by which we are called sons and daughters. How could we not cry out to our Father in time of need, in time of joy? And that's what the psalm suggests. Just like how you, you know, come home from work may determine the course of the evening with your family or with your spouse, or the way you kick off a meeting will determine the course it takes, whether you have your hearer's attention, I think the way you kick off your prayers, at least in your mind, of where you're starting from, will determine the course your prayers take and will determine whether you continue to pray. So begin in understanding that God has established you and surrounds you, that he is committed to you profoundly. Hebrews 10, 19, where we, where we read the New Testament lesson, says this, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he has opened for us, since we have a great high priest 
over the house of God. Let us draw near. Let us draw near. Brothers and sisters, I suggest this morning that we reflect on these truths and we draw near to God because he is drawn near to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you supremely for your grace to us in Jesus, that you have established us, that you have washed us clean and called us your own, and that you've sent your spirit to be with us. This morning, we reflect on these truths, and we are thankful. And I pray that thanksgiving would well up in every heart here, that we would offer to you sacrifice of praise that you deserve. We ask all these things in Christ's name.